0: I want to speak to you this morning once again out of Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 12 verses. This is a, uh, an extremely significant event that Mark records because it's here where Jesus clearly testifies through his actions, through his words, why he's come. And there is significant import for you and I as we read through this passage. As we do so, there are three scenes or three venues, if you will, I I want to try to get you to put yourself in. First is the place of Jesus himself. Secondly, the place of the four guys who carry this paralytic in. We'll call them stretcher bearers. And thirdly, uh, the place of the paralyzed guy. (laughs) Now, I think that it's, it's fairly clear, it ought to be, at least to most all of us, that the paralyzed man, though a historical figure from the account, is really a metaphor for all of mankind. Paralyzed in the grip of sin. Unable to get off that mat. Unable to walk. Unable to freely enjoy that which God has given us. And it's only when we are forgiven. It's only when we are healed spiritually first can we then be healed in other areas of our life. There is a direct relationship From spiritual healing to relational healing, fiscal healing, (laughs) physical healing, it all hangs on that spiritual healing. So we're going to look at that. Now, right after this event, as we look in the ensuing weeks, you're going to see evidence that this is a critical event. This is a watershed event in this first year of Jesus' ministry. And because of his clear claim to deity and his authority to forgive sins, the opposition is going to start to rise rapidly against him. So this is a major and a significant event in the life and the ministry of Jesus up here in Galilee. It's going to to mark the close of his Galilean ministry soon, and where he'll then begin to proceed down south into Judea, where he's really going to meet with opposition. Remember, Jesus has been ministering up in Galilee for some time, and... Earlier on, he has been prohibited from ministry in the uh, synagogues. Kyla, nice to see you. You just kind of catch people out of the corner of your eye who are hiding out in the side. (laughs) He's been prohibited now from ministry in the synagogues. Remember, because in Nazareth, he was driven from the synagogue and almost killed. He's been... Prohibited from ministering in the towns we saw last week because of the leper who he'd healed who went and blabbed all over town and all the crowds came to him seeking to get their goodies not really interested in him and forcing him to retreat to the lonely places even where people still pursued him mark records now that he comes back to capernaum capernaum is his home base of operations Possibly he comes, uh, and that's where Simon Peter lived, and this is probably Simon Peter's house that's going to get its roof torn up. See, when you're involved in ministry, you can expect things like that are going to happen. You're going to have to expect that probably you're going to have to sacrifice some personal possessions if you're going to be involved in ministry. So this gives something to look forward to. Read with me. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And as a consequence, so many people gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. It was a common custom in Palestine, and especially up in Galilee, that uh, in the mornings people would open their front doors and uh, there was a great air of hospitality. You could walk in and out of a person's house. not You didn't have to knock. Just everyone was welcome. So it was not a foreign thing for people once they heard Jesus was back in town to literally go to Peter's house and fill the whole house and indeed fill the outside courtyard so that there's no room for anybody left. What kind of person do you suppose Jesus is to draw so many people like that so readily? Let me ask you a question. What kind of person would draw you like this? If you were full of burdens and sorrows and griefs and sadnesses, what kind of person would you want in your life that you could go to and draw comfort from? A gracious person? Understanding person? Compassionate person? Or a rigid legalist? <laughs> now you notice they don't stream into the house because the Pharisees are there. <laughs> because the teachers of the law are there. What kind of person is Jesus. He is compassionate, he is merciful, he's gracious, he's forgiving. Does not that kind of person act as a magnet to us and draw us to them? What kind of people ought we to be, do you suppose? Well, if the Bible, if what the Bible says is true, that that we are, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. What he's in effect saying is that the image of God that was built into mankind in the beginning, which was distorted in chapter 3 of Genesis, the fall of man, God is now restoring that image. God is restoring man to his original dignity of being made in God's image. Now, if, if I'm being restored, if I'm being transformed more and more each day into the image, into the likeness of Jesus, what ought to be the evidence of that in my life? Well, that people are happy to see me. Right? That people say things like, Oh, I'm glad you're here. It's so good that you're here. Right? Or, Oh, it's you again. Now, there's going to be some measure of both of those things in our life, obviously. And uh, in the beginning, that measure will be on the negative side probably more than the positive. But if you're maturing as a Christian, if you're maturing in Christ, then you'll hear less and less of, oh, it's you again, and more of, "Who, it's you again. There will really, truly be a qualitative difference in people's response. Now, your motivation could be the same. You may say, and you may believe with all your heart, that you have a heart for the kingdom, you have a heart for the lost, you, have a, you, you believe you're compassionate and you're merciful and you want to minister to people, but the way you live out that ministry may not always be real gracious. But as God hammers on you, as He puts you in the furnace, as He turns the heat up, as He causes the dross and the impurities to come to the surfaces, as He, as he removes them, as he refines you, then more and more and more you become a person who is more and more and more like Jesus. Less of you and more of Jesus. Less of you and more of Jesus. Less of you and more of Jesus. Jesus. That's what people see. And that's that's the thing that, that attracts people. Does our life reflect the reality that Jesus is at home? And do people come to this house the people crowd to this house because Jesus is at home. Do we give evidence of that in our life more and more and more? Are you with me? Yes. I, like most people, want an easy life. I, like most people, want a comfortable life. Am I the only one in this room? Okay, Brian, you're the only one along with me. Yes, waving your hand. I, I understand. I too want a comfortable life. Back row. He normally sits in the front row. However, they have a brand new baby, so they're back. I understand. I give him grace. I want a comfortable life. There's that part of me in my human nature, which is still fallen and still subject to sin, that wants to be comfortable and doesn't want to be disturbed and interrupted. But there's another part of me. There's that spirit, that new spiritual life that I possess. The image of Christ that God is working in, maturing, maturing, causing to grow and grow and grow, that battles against my flesh, that says, no, no, don't settle for the easy way. Don't settle for the easy life. Don't let yourself be complacent. Don't long to be comfortable here. Does anybody else know that battle in their life? Okay, several of you, good. The great mass has not yet come in contact with that battle. Hopefully after this morning... You will engage it. The easy life, though it is desirable on one hand, the easy life is really an empty life. It really is. I mean, we say things like you know, anything worth having is worth what, working for? I mean, life is hard. But if you're looking at fulfillment in life, and that's what everybody really longs for, is to sit down and to think about their life and say, "What does my life really count for? Is my life meaningful, really?" They begin to think, you know, what, what what substance is there? Am I making a mark? Is does does do I matter? See, those kinds of things are important to people, just people in general. And while the tendency always is to be comfortable, being comfortable, we have this understanding that just being comfortable, just living an easy life, ultimately leads us to an empty life. It really does. And it's when we understand that, and when we give ourselves to the Lord, and when we give ourselves to that which He calls us to, then we begin to understand what true fulfillment, true meaning, true purpose is all about. And I labor under no delusions. I don't want you to either. Uh, It is a difficult life. It is a difficult life. So if we're to be like Jesus... And if that's what God's desire and plan for each of us is, as He conforms us to the image of Christ, we must understand that it is not an easy life. But the evidence that it is occurring is that there will be people who will come to us with their problems, with their griefs, with their sorrows, with their needs. They're going to intrude on our life. And it doesn't always happen at our convenience. (laughs) If you're a Christian, or if you seek to be a Christian, you've got to know that you're buying into the hardest life you could ever buy into, but you're not left to your own resources. It's Christ in you. will sustain you and strengthen you. Your battle is to say, yes, Lord, and do, yes, Lord. That's your battle. And he'll bring the empowerment. So Jesus is back in town, Amen. and people are crowding to the house. Do our lives give evidence that Jesus is at home in this house, and that people come? That's the question we want to ask ourselves. The question we want to say is: What are people? What? Are, how do people think? What are people saying? I'm glad. I'm glad you're here, or I'm not glad you're here. Because that has a significant. Bearing, or, or I should say, gives us evidence of where we are and the evidence of Jesus in our life. Are you with me? Yes. Now, we're told that he's in this house. People are crowded in there. What is Jesus doing in the house? What is he doing? Showing movies? They're playing cards. Having a party? What are they doing? Preaching the word. Beloved, we need to be people who are looking for every opportunity to turn every conversation into an opportunity to share the word of God, to share some godly principle. Not to be preachy. Every every interaction with people is an opportunity. We're gonna get to that in a minute. It's an opportunity. An opportunity to bring some beautiful nugget of truth to bear. In the midst of that conversation, if we are aware, if we are growing, if we are maturing, then we're going to be like Jesus, much more aware of our surroundings, of the people around us, and of the opportunities to share. And I mean, you can do it in lots of ways. People say something, you know, that reminds me of something. Or, you know, the Bible says, or I was wondering if that's and such, how about there's a million ways in which you can do it. The point is we won't do it unless we are maturing and unless we hold the word in high esteem and we look for opportunities to bring the truth of the word to bear in other people's lives, not to preach at them, but to point them in the way of the truth, to point them in the way of the truth. So Jesus is preaching the word. Preach in the Word. Preach in the Word. Preach in the Word. The Word's important. Earlier on at the early service, 8 o'clock, I was at the top of the stairs greeting people, and one of the brothers came in and hadn't seen him in a while. He was kind of sheepish, and I said to him very graciously, Where have you been? Oh, he knows. I kid him. He says, Well, I've been around. I said, Let me ask you, and you're being around, have you been reading the Word? You've been reading your Bible? He said, No. He said, I know I need to be. I said, You've got to be feeding on God's Word. You know that. He said, Yeah, you're right. He said, Thanks. I needed that. I was gracious. I was gracious. (laughs) So he's preaching the word. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. So we have four stretcher bearers. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they put him down outside. They laid the stretcher down outside shrugged their shoulders, said, well, that's that, can't get in, too crowded, no parking place, may as well turn around and go home. (laughs) Is that what they do? No, they don't do that. They certainly might be tempted to do that, huh? No, they they are late. The late comers, and, and the place is already jammed with people. And they bring this guy on a on a stretcher. They see the crowd. They see there's no way that they can get in the front door. And so they begin to think. Now, when they do get in and they bring the guy to Jesus, what does Jesus do? What does he say to them? He commends them for their what? For their faith. Their faith is characterized by two things, two things. It is ingenious faith, and it is persistent faith. These guys are not going to take no for an answer. These guys are not going to let a crowd, they're not even going to let a roof stop them. If we can't get in this way, we're going to try another way. Don't you love it? Yeah. And so they're looking around, they're saying, how are we going to get him in there? They look up, they see the roof. Now it was common in, in Palestine, and in Israel, the roofs were all flat, and there were out, outside stairways up to the top of the roof, and there was an area on the flat roof for people to spend time and fellowship and pray and do their, you know, like we would have a patio or a deck, you know, and so forth. And there was also a, step, a stairway inside that would lead from a trap door on the roof to allow people to get inside the house. So logically, they would say, let's take him up on the roof and bring him down through the trap door. They get up on the roof, they find that the trap door is too small to lower this guy down safely. So what are they going to do? Are they going to take the guy back down the stairway? They're going to say, it doesn't look good. Can't get him in this way. Hmm, let's take him back down and start from ground zero again? No, their faith is ingenious. Who, who would think to do what they've done? What do they do? They're going to dig a hole in Peter's roof. They're going to dig a hole in Peter's roof. It's a good thing Peter's in ministry, huh? So they start digging a hole. They're not going to let anything stop them. Do you remember, In, in there's a, a great parallel to this in Luke chapter 11. There's another one, in Luke 18, but Luke 11 is fascinating. Luke 11, remember, is the account Jesus tells of the man who has a friend come from a far distance to visit him late at night, and hospitality is the rule of the day. And so the person comes, he wants to prepare a meal, however he has no bread, so he needs some bread. It's late at night, so what does the guy do? 7-Eleven is closed, what does he do? <laughs> he goes next door to his neighbor's house, and he lightly taps on the door, hoping to stir somebody, in hopes that he can get three loaves of bread. Do you remember that story? Is that what he does? No, no. he goes and boldly wakes up the whole house. He is going to have that bread. (laughs) Isn't he? Would you or I do that? Would you or I do that? No, we would not. I would submit to you that we would never embarrass ourselves to resort to waking up the whole neighborhood to get three loaves of bread in the middle of the night because we want to feed our friend who just come from across the country. We would never do that never in the face of urgent need we do not always exert ourselves like that guy exerts himself we won't put ourselves out because we don't want to be embarrassed that guy bangs on that door his neighbor wakes up tells him to get out of there If even we went and did that and the neighbor told us to leave, we'd probably go. But that guy's gone so far, he's woken everybody up. No, I need the bread. Our faith needs to be ingenious and persistent. When we're bringing people to Jesus... You've got to be ingenious because some situations require ingenuity, great ingenuity. You've got to sit down and think, how am I going to get this guy to Jesus? Man, he's a paralytic. He, is, he needs help. And you've got to pray. You've got to think. You've got to think. You've got to think. You've got to immerse yourself in that process, and you've got to be persistent about it. And though the barriers are there, and though the opposition is there, that opposition will fall if you are persistent. I promise you. I promise you. But we give up too quick. Those four guys are the first in a long line of people who will carry others to Jesus. And we are in that line. We are stretcher bearers, are we not? And at one time, we were on the stretcher. And there were others who brought us to Jesus. And now it's our turn. The church is a hospital. The church is a refuge, a refuge for imperfection. The world is full of paralyzed people. And this is halftime. You're in here. You just you spent the first half out there, and I'm going to send you back out in the second half in a little while. This is halftime. I'm giving you a pep talk. I'm saying, go out there. Don't let them beat us. Load those stretchers. Load those stretchers. And be persistent. And you've got to use wisdom. You've got to think. How am I going to get this guy to Jesus? And you may, have to, you may have to get some help. You may need a couple other stretcher bearers to help you do it. Think. And so these guys are persistent. They start digging in the roof. Now, I want to ask you a question. Put yourself in that room. Jesus is what? What's he doing? Preaching Preaching the word. I mean, could you think that all these people are just hanging on almost every word that's dropping out of his mouth? They're going, wow. They've never heard things like this. We we, we heard that earlier, right? They've never heard words like this. They've never heard him talk about the love of God and the grace and the mercy and so forth. And so they're hanging on every word. They're wrapped and all of a sudden, right in the middle of this ministry that's going on, powerful ministry, what begins to happen? Dust begins to come from the ceiling. <laughs> then right after the dust, dirt begins to fall down. And then pretty soon, light shines through. Do you think that that, that would have gotten everybody else's attention? Do you think that what in the world is going on up there? Jesus. And it's not very long before a body is being laid down through the roof. And Jesus, of course, resents the intrusion. This unexpected intrusion, he says, what? Are they, don't they know that I'm teaching? You got to know something. This is, this is important. Jesus is very aware. He's very aware. He knows what's going on around him. I'm trying to train up my son and teach my son to be aware of what's going on around him. Be aware. Look around. Be alert. Have an understanding of life and what's going on around you. Be prepared. Jesus is that way. We are to be that way. Jesus is alert to whatever happens rather than being annoyed... Rather than being resentful for this intrusion, he's going to use this intrusion as an opportunity to teach. As an opportunity for ministry. How do you feel when unexpected intrusions happen in your life? Do you go, oh, great. There goes my day. Shot. I had my agenda all set. And then you called. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Yep.
1: Yes.
0: You've got to understand that these things that happen in our life happen not by accident. There is design there. But they are also opportunities. Even the tragic ones are opportunities. But unless we have that conscious awareness, we'll not benefit by, nor will anybody else benefit by that opportunity. I used to be in the Amway business. Some of you know that. If you're here this morning, you're in the Amway business, don't misinterpret or misunderstand anything I'm going to say. I'm not meaning to be offensive. Whatever can be misunderstood will be. I understand that. I don't want to get any letters. I used to be in the Amway business years ago. I was very successful. Made lots of money out of it. I began to understand very early on while I was in that Amway business... The life was full of opportunities. People were opportunities. People were all around me. I said, this is a people business. This is not just a soap business, this is a people business. And the more people I interact with, the more people I can get in my business, the more money I'm gonna make. Now I'd like to say that I was altruistic and wanted to help people. But I have to tell you, I was very selfish. I wanted to help me. I wanted to make as much money as I could make. I wanted to be filthy rich. And I knew people that were millionaires for that business, and I knew if they could do it, I could do it. So I did it. I didn't become a millionaire, I lost it. But you know what? I looked, I looked at life as an opportunity. I would meet people, and I'd say, say there, my name's Zach, what's your name? John, it's nice to meet you, John. Say, what do you do for work? I mean, I would just strike up conversations with people. I would just meet people, I would go out of my way to meet people, strike up conversations, get to know them, because what was in the back of my mind? John, you mean money to me. I see dollar signs when I look at you.
1: I'm retired and retarded.
0: Anyway, 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 I, I would look for ways to turn, turn conversations. I'd engage people at any level. It did not matter to me. I would engage people at any level, and I would look for the opportunity to change and to turn that conversation, to get them to talk about their life, their life goals, what they wanted, what their income was like, and so forth. And then I would present an opportunity. I realized that all of my goals were futile and God swept all that away. Took it all out of my life. He broke me and I was penniless. I came to the, I came to know the Lord as a result of all of that in my life. But now I'm on a new mission. I still look at life as an opportunity. Great. I still look at people and I still introduce myself to people and I still ask them questions and I say, by the way, John, where is it you go to church? <laughs> <laughs> or I'll ask him a question like, say, John, may I ask you a personal question? Well, of course he's going to say, well, all right, what? I say, do you have a Christian background? Do you, are you, were you raised Christian? Now, whether he was or not is not the issue. I've got an opportunity here to lead this man to Jesus. Yeah. You like that, huh? Oh, I love these guys in the front row.
1: Awesome.
0: You see, you gotta look at life. And every event in life, even the unexpected intrusions that upset your agenda, that upset your schedule, the things that are going on in your life, the things that threaten you, you've got to look at them. These are here by design. God has promised to use all things for your good if you love Him and have been called according to His purpose. So this can be redeemed. But that takes ingenuity. It takes a willingness to be aware. It takes a willingness to be in the process of becoming more like Jesus so that in fact, we can be more fruitful in using these things. So here's Jesus, this guy's laying down in front of him. He doesn't say, what in the world do you guys think you're doing? But rather he commends the four guys for their faith turns to this guy on the bed, the paralytic, and what does he say to the paralytic? He says to them something totally unexpected. You would expect that the guy would, that Jesus would say, get up and walk. I mean, it's obvious the guy's paralyzed, right? But he doesn't say that. Rather, he says this. Now, Matthew and Luke have parallel accounts. Matthew's account has these words, take heart, take heart, son. All your sins are forgiven at this moment. All your sins are forgiven at this moment. Now, to understand that, you have to understand some of the background. There's a common teaching throughout the history of man, but most prominently in Israel, that diseases and sicknesses and illnesses were caused by some specific sin. In other words, if you had some disease like paralysis or leprosy, behind that disease lurked a specific sin. You were guilty, and therefore God is heaping punishment on you. We still say that today. We still live with a remnant of that in our own life. And, and, and most especially in very legalistic churches and environments like that, where you come down with some kind of sickness or, you know, and people say, I wonder if there's sin in their life. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, we do know that, that there is a cause and effect relationship. We can predispose ourselves to suffering by our own sinfulness, can't we? Mm-hmm. I and mean, we can do things. You get drunk. You drive down the road, you get in an accident, and someone in your car gets killed. And you say, why did that person die? Well, because you got drunk and drove the car, and there's a death. So there's a, a cause and effect relationship. But that's not always the case. The Bible does teach us that sickness, disease, death itself is the result of the sinfulness of mankind in general all have sinned everybody's guilty before god everybody's trapped by this paralyzing power called sin whereby we effectively commit acts of sin am i making sense so this guy's laying there jesus says to him take heart why should he say take heart Because this man knows the teaching of the day, and the teaching of the day is that he has this disease, obviously, as a result of some sin. Either he's conscious of the sin, if that be the case, we don't know from the account, or at least he's under the agonizing guilt from the teachers of the day who have convinced him that he has it because he certainly has committed some sin in his life. So not only must he contend with the problem of the paralysis and the agony and the grief of the paralysis, he's also got to contend with the agony of either real or imagined guilt. So his problem is really compounded. Do you see that? And some of us have experienced that. You search, you rack your brain, and you have this guilt Because somebody has said, well, you have this disease because you committed some sin. You need to search your heart. Well, certainly it's a good thing to search your heart every day. But if if it's accompanied by some non-specific guilt that is not legitimate, you understand the agony of carrying that around? The grief? So Jesus addresses this man's fundamental problem his felt guilt he's got to relieve the guilt before he can heal this man that's his posture and the teachers of the day taught there could be no healing healing was absolutely impossible unless first there was forgiveness which which is easier to do forgive sins or heal somebody They're both equally hard. Can you forgive sins? Can you forgive sins? No. Only God can forgive sins. Can you heal a paralyzed person? No, only God can heal a paralyzed person. Right? He may use you as a vehicle, as a vessel of His healing power, but it's God who does it. It's God who forgives. They're both equally hard because they're both God's prerogative. And so Jesus understanding the man's need. Jesus, understanding the fundamental basic human need to be healed spiritually, to be forgiven of sins and relieved of guilt, which opens the door for every other kind of healing. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He uses this man as an object lesson to not only the people there, but also to the scribes and the teachers of the law and to all who would read the account. And this is a watershed event early in the ministry of Jesus, which predisposes him now to tremendous opposition because he is posturing as God. He says to the guy, take heart. All of your sins are forgiven at this moment. Now sitting in the front row are the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. Luke takes pains. To write in his parallel account that many of these religious leaders came all the way from Jerusalem. Now, do you suppose they were just on a tour of Galilee and thought they'd stop in? <laughs> no, they're stalking Jesus. They are stalking him. And he says what he says because it's their teaching that he's going to hang him on. Their very teaching. So no sooner does he pronounce forgiveness of the guy's sins. And forgiveness, by the way, the root word for forgiveness means to throw in the Greek. It means to throw. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has our Lord thrown or removed our transgressions from us. When God forgives you, you have to understand something about his forgiveness. When God forgives you, all your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. If I offend Theo, or better yet, he offends me. If I offend Theo here, And I go to him and say, Theo, I'm sorry I offended you. Would you please forgive me? And Theo says, I forgive you. Isn't that wonderful? Though he forgives me, does he have the power, does he have the ability to remove from me the memory of that sin and that guilt? No, he doesn't, does he? Does he have the ability to make it so that it would be just as if I had never offended him? No, he doesn't have that ability. I always have that memory. He always has the memory. And there's going to always be a little distance in there, in our relationship. Isn't there? Because of that offense, even though he's forgiven me and I've received the forgiveness. There's closure, but there's going to be a little bit of distance still. Because there's going to be a memory. It's only God, who when he forgives, when he forgives, he cleanses of all unrighteousness. It's God who gives us a righteousness. It's God who doesn't just forgive, but He forgets. It's God who takes our sin and gives us in return His righteousness. It's God who justifies us and now looks at us just as if we had never sinned. And unless you're able to embrace that, you'll never know the freedom of being a Christian. You'll suffer continual self-condemnation and guilt. You say, but what about the sin I did this morning? I sinned this morning. I know I'm going to sin tomorrow. Yes, but that sin that you did this morning, that sin you're going to do tomorrow, was already dealt with on the cross 2,000 years ago. It was already dealt with. Does that give you a license to sin? No. You just have to confront your fallenness still and your your imperfection continue to grow in the Lord so that sin no longer reigns in your mortal body, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 6. Sin is no longer your master. And God looks at you just as if you'd never sinned. Well, if that's true, then why does John say in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us? Because when we sin... We, in effect, turn our back. Just like our children, when they disobey us, don't they really go their own way? And don't they need to come back and acknowledge that they've sinned against us as parents? Yes. When they've turned their back, they're moving away from us. We don't turn our back on our kids. God doesn't turn His back on us when we commit acts of sin still yet today. He's still facing towards us. We've turned our back. We're walking away. We've got to turn around and admit where we are so that we can once again embrace his already free grace. Am I making sense to you? This is revolutionary for the Jews. This is revolutionary for mankind. This is revolutionary for some people this morning who've been living as Christians all their life, but they don't understand God's grace. God looks at you if you are born again, if you are a Christian and you claim the name of Jesus, you put your trust in His death on your behalf. God now has forgiven you and He looks at you just as you have never sinned. You are righteous in His sight. Do you know what kind of freedom that can bring? No more guilt. I'm not going to carry this load of guilt anymore. And you know what stems from guilt, unresolved guilt? Fear. And you know what stems from unresolved fear? Anxiety. Increasing, increasing, increasing anxiety. People get freaked out. People start coming apart at the seams. People's lives just start coming apart. Relationships start dissolving. All sorts of things happen because they need that deep spiritual healing that only Jesus can bring. And he brings it through the forgiveness of sins and the relief of guilt. And he looks right into this man's life and he says, take heart. Be encouraged. God is near and he loves you and he cares for you. And all your sins are forgiven at this moment. Freedom! Now, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and the scribes are sitting there, curling their lips. And they're not just puzzled, they're frustrated. They say, Who does this guy think he is? He's a blasphemer. Why do they call him a blasphemer? Who has the power to forgive sins? God only. And he's what? Forgiving sins, which implies that he is God. If that were not true, these guys would not be ticked. That's one of the proofs that Jesus is God. The very fact that the reaction that it draws from the legalists of the day demonstrates it. They knew exactly what he was saying. Amen. They say only God can forgive sins. He's making himself one with God. Now Jesus, do you suppose he knows what they're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Mark says yes. Immediately, immediately in his, in his spirit, he knew what they were thinking in their hearts. He knew what was going on inside them. Immediately. So he turns to them and he says, why? why are you thinking these things? Who us? <laughs> Why are you thinking these things? Then he poses a question. He hangs them on the horns of a dilemma: their own teaching. He's going to demonstrate that he is who he says he is on the basis of their own teaching. Do they have a dilemma? <laughs> oh, they sure will. See, nobody can get healed until they're first forgiven. And if he indeed heals this guy, and he's pronounced him forgiven, he must be God. (laughs) They're not going to want to hear this. So he says to them, he said, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? Which is easier? To say which one? No, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. And how's anybody going to know? See, if I say, John, your sins are forgiven. You say, oh, thank you very much. Now, no one really knows, right? But if I say, John, pick up your bed, get up, and walk. That's the harder thing, huh? They're both the prerogative of God, are they not? So he hangs them. He says, which is easier? He doesn't give them an opportunity to answer. He nails them, but he doesn't give them a chance to answer. He comes right back to them. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic, and he says, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. Man. Can you imagine electricity in that room in that moment? Everybody's going. (laughs) What does the paralytic do? Does he still lay there? No. He takes Jesus at his word, he gets up and he walks. He obeys. He obeys. Here we come again. It's always back to obedience, isn't it? He obeys. When you, by faith, come to Christ, and Jesus pronounces over you, by faith, from your point of view, take heart, all of your sins are forgiven at this moment. The door is open for you to get up and walk. The door is open now for you to be free. All that remains is for you to get up and start taking, albeit even baby steps of obedience, but start walking. Don't still lay there in your paralysis. Don't still lay there and say, but, 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 get up and walk. Get up and walk. Get up and obey God. Because He has made it possible. And you're never going to know it unless you begin to obey Him and do it. There are far, 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 far too many people today in the church who have still not gotten off their beds and still not moved out of their paralysis. They claim his forgiveness, but they're not walking in obedience. Living out the freedom that he has made for them. After he's done this, the guy gets up, he walks out in full view of everybody, Mark says, right? is that true? Yes. What happens next? What does Mark record happens next? John, what does he say? Got up, walked out, Matt walked out in full view of them. Uh, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we, we have never seen anything like this. Amen. He walked out and amazed everyone. And what else? Never seen anything. Praise God. They praised God. Now, Amen. Who was amazed and who praised God? What does it say? Everyone.
1: everyone. Everyone. Ha!
0: I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. Let me tell you my problem. I have a theory. Let me just say it this way. I have a theory. <laughs> so I can't be blamed. I'm teaching heresy. I have a theory. My theory is that we have a saying. Don't we have a saying? Well, everyone knows. Or everyone's been to Disneyland or you know what I'm saying? It's an expression which we, we all recognize, meaning that, well, lots and lots of people know thus and such, lots and lots of people have been to Disneyland, but in terms of the absolute sense, has everyone been to Disneyland? No. No. So I would submit to you that in that room, not everyone was amazed in the absolute sense, and not everyone praised God. They may have given the appearance of being amazed. Did you see that? Not, wow, did you see that? And they have raised their hands, but they weren't exactly praising God. Who do you suppose may have been excluded from Everyone. Maybe a scribe or two? I think so. Because right afterwards, you're going to see opposition heating up to Jesus. He's done an awesome thing, he's proclaimed who he is, and he has done the thing that only God can do, and that's forgive sins. And on the basis of that forgiveness, he's healed this man. This man is free. He does the same thing for us today. He comes. He makes himself available. People bring us to him. He forgives our sin. You've got to understand the fundamental underlying problem is the need for forgiveness. We are guilty. And that as we embrace his forgiveness... We embrace his healing in other areas of our life. He restores us. He puts our lives back together. There's an old nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Uh, Humpty Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, all the resources available could not put Humpty Dumpty back together. That nursery rhyme was written to describe the fall of man and the devastation of man and the need for God, the maker of man, in the person of Jesus, to put man back together. Just like in that room there were people who did not praise God, just like in that room there were people who were not impressed, not amazed, there are people in this room who are not amazed. There are people in this room who are still paralyzed. There are people in this room who are still burdened with guilt, sin, fear, anxiety. I'm here to tell you, Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to heal you. Pray with me. Lord, once again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example that you give to us through your own life. I thank you for the example of this paralytic. I thank you for the very clear picture that I, too, was a paralytic. And you forgave me and healed me and gave me a brand new life. You made me a stretcher bearer. You've made us all stretcher bearers. Lord, I pray this morning that we would all be amazed and that we would all praise you for your gracious work and your continuous faithfulness. I pray especially for those in our midst this morning who have not yet come to a place where they have availed themselves of your mercy and your grace and your healing power. We ask, Father, that you would help them, help them this morning, help them come to a place where they know they need you, where they become intimately acquainted with their own griefs and guilts and fears, and they turn to you, that you'd set them free, they could know your forgiveness. Church, I want to ask you to pray right now. (laughs) Let's praise the Lord one more time before we dismiss, all right?